Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Okay, please stand. We'll begin in prayer. We pray this evening we're going to offer it, first of all, for Father Charles Abudi, who tomorrow will have be celebrating 51 years of ordination to the priesthood, and uh, Randy Bertelin's birthday is also today, and so... Uh, Remember these two faithful servants of God and make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon thee the heavenly God as upon a father and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Uh, bow down your heads to receive God's blessing. The blessing of the Lord and his mercy come upon you through his grace and his love for mankind at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. And also, for Father Charles, I'll just say one word to all of the... Uh, elderly that are here this evening. I always tell my children, for those that don't know me, I'm Deacon Salvatino Carnazzo. I'm the founding director of the Institute. I'm a married deacon. I have four children. And uh, I always tell my children when they meet the elderly of our parish that they are to be very thankful to them. Because if it wasn't for their faith that God would do great works at their hands, we would not have a church to go to. And that goes for all of the elderly here this evening and all of those founding members of our parishes that faithfully handed on the gift of faith, the gift of faith to the next generation. I am thankful for my church. My children are thankful to you. And all of the youth that you see are thankful to you. We are indebted to you for the gift of faith. Without you, we would not have received the life-giving mysteries which Christ has prepared for us. Uh, and so thank you very much, not only to the priests, but all the laity that have worked so hard to hand on the faith. Our topic tonight on the, the conversion of Russia is part of that story, part of the story of the mysteries of God working in the hearts of men to bring out something greater than those men could ever have foreseen. The conversion of nations, the following of the commandment of God to go out and teach all nations and not to be afraid of what can come. And is a great example to us as we listen to the words of Professor McGuire this evening to think about that, the gift of faith that so many before us went down that road not knowing what God would do with their hands and look at the results. And if we have faith, I believe that God will still work in our day, in our age, to hand upon the faith to the next generation if we're faithful to Him. Uh, just one quick thing I wanted to mention for those that are new to the Institute tonight, if you appreciate what we're doing, 
that we need more adult education in our churches, that we need more opportunities to learn the saving truths of our faith, please consider your support for the Institute of Catholic Culture. As I said, we don't charge. So we rely upon the generosity of those who believe that we do face a crisis in our society and a crisis in our church in adult faith formation. You can take that and pray on it and, uh, and, and do with it as you will. Our speaker this evening is a Catholic historian specializing in the classical and medieval periods. Brendan McGuire received his doctoral degree in medieval history from St. Louis University and in recent years has presented scholarly research on various historical topics at prestigious regional, national, and international conferences. He has taught both history and classical languages at the undergraduate level, and he is currently a professor of history at Christendom College, his alma mater. Dr. McGuire has been a frequent presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we are so glad that he is back. Please join me in welcoming Professor, don't walk out that door, <laughs> Professor <laughs> Brendan McGuire. Thank you, Deacon Sabatino. We, we had seekers of the faith who came to the door, and I didn't want to tell them there was, that there was no room at the inn, but I think the inn might have another door somewhere. So, I don't know. so anyway, it's good to be with you guys again. It's good to see all the familiar faces and all the, uh, the new faces. For those of you following the news, uh, if you follow international news at all, you might have picked up on some of Vladimir Putin's uh, behavior recently. In between, uh, in between getting divorced and hanging out with Steven Seagal, he's, he's been a pretty busy guy, right? And, but in the midst of this sort of packed schedule, televising his divorce ceremony where they took divorce vows, I know, it's bizarre. Anyway, uh, yeah, the, the guy, he's, he's an eccentric, to say the least. But uh, amidst all of this, he found time to meet with the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem to commemorate the 1,025th anniversary of the baptism of Russia. 1,025th, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so what we're making reference to is the late 10th century conversion, of course, of St. Vladimir. Now, part of the challenge that we're going to face in terms of actually understanding the medieval conversion of Russia to the Christian faith is the fact that the term Russia, in, in modern times, it, it's a nationalistic term, right? And nationalism is going to become one of our biggest obstacles to actually understanding the events that we're going to discuss this evening. Case in point, uh, an old friend of mine came up to me before the talk, and uh, he's a proud Ukrainian, uh, although he doesn't admit that he's half Polish. But anyway, uh, he, <laughs> he came up and he, he said to me, hey, you know, I'm, I'm mad that you titled the talk The Conversion of Russia. And I said, I didn't do that. Sabatino did that. Uh, but <laughs> He said, Is, isn't it really the conversion of Ukraine? St. Vladimir, or Volodymyr, as the Ukrainians call him, he was, he was the king of Kiev, right? He was, he was a Ukrainian figure. He, he brought Christianity to Ukraine. Those Muscovites, they're totally different, right? That, that's a totally different thing. Okay, and, and this, of course, is what you run into when you look at nationalist historiography. Russian nationalist historiography claims St. Vladimir as the, the father of Christian Russia. Ukrainian nationalist historiography claims St. Vladimir as a great Ukrainian leader at a time when Ukraine was free from Russian domination. Uh, the the Belorussians also claim St. Vladimir as their father, etc., at a time when Belorussia actually ruled the Ukraine and wasn't dominated by those great Russians or whatever. But, but the problem is that all of this modern nationalism, it does nothing but distort the past. It doesn't help us understand the past at all. In fact, St. Vladimir, as I'll, if you'll forgive me for calling him Vladimir, it's just easier to say than the Ukrainian version. But anyway, St. Vladimir, is, um, he was, of course, neither Russian nor Ukrainian nor Belarusian in any modern sense. Those modern nationalistic identities did not exist in medieval times. 
right? And this is sometimes hard for people to realize when they're dealing with medieval history in general, right? When you're, when you're talking about Holy Roman Emperors or even kings of France, uh, you're not talking about people who lived in a world of nationalistic identities. So if we can wipe all of that away, all right, all the, the modern-day nationalistic resentments that divide Ukrainians from Russians, etc., um, what we find is who St. Vladimir actually was, which is that he was a, a 10th and 11th century king of a, a kingdom called the Kievan Rus. The Kievan Rus is the generic <laughs> historiographical term for his kingdom. Now, what was it? Was the Kievan Rus a state? Was it an empire? No. It was a loosely organized tribal confederation of warlike barbarians who had a lot of fun slaughtering each other and their neighbors and their enemies. And uh, St. Vladimir was, of course, well, uh, there was a, a German chronicler who referred to him as Fornicator Maximus. Uh, and uh, what that, all that means is that he was just a pagan king, right? He had 800 concubines and, uh, you know, he was, he was living the good life as, as a pagan king of a large tribal confederation at the time when he adopted Christianity and he exchanged his 800 concubines for a Byzantine princess. He thought it was a good deal. Uh, but anyway, so if, if we wipe away, right, wipe away all the distortion of nationalism and actually come and take a look at the history of Christianity in the Kievan Rus, uh, it gives us actually a great opportunity to sort of link what we're talking about tonight with our last series on Cyril and Methodius, because we discussed in great detail in our last two-part series the introduction of the Slavs to Christianity, the way in which Christianity began to penetrate amongst Slavic tribes in the ninth century, and the way in which the Slavs kind of became a missionary battleground between Latin missionaries coming from the West and Byzantine missionaries that were sent by the, the great patriarch Photius in the ninth century. Okay, and, and so the, the conversion of the Slavs becomes something that was almost contested between uh, the, the patriarchates of Rome and Constantinople, and the solution of St. Cyril and Methodius was to adopt the liturgical and spiritual tradition of Constantinople while insisting on remaining in communion with the papacy, right, presenting a great model for Byzantine Catholics today. Now, when we move to the Kievan Rus, though, geographically we're moving east. Right? We're moving into the lands of the eastern Slavs. And uh, it's actually interesting to note the extent to which Christianity in the 9th century had failed to penetrate the lands of the eastern Slavs. Right? The eastern Slavs, among whom were the people of the Rus and the Drevelians and a variety of other tribal confederations that, that all have strange names, uh, none of which really mean anything because medieval ethnography was not really scientific. But be that as it may, as we move eastward, we move into a land that was densely forested, that was filled with... Um, all kinds of, of hostile wildlife, bears and wolves, you know, dense forests, men walking around in animal skins uh, and conducting blood feuds with one another, attempting to expand their sway over vast amounts of territory between Novgorod in the north and Cherson on the Black Sea. Right? We're entering it into a world where European culture had had a hard time penetrating. Okay, and 9th century missionary efforts, I think it's interesting to note, 9th century missionary efforts had very little lasting effect there. Uh, the Kievan Rus, as a political confederation, it didn't really emerge until around the year 900, and it reached the height of its power around 150 years later. The, the heyday of the Kievan Rus was sort of a brief heyday. By the 13th century, the Kievan Rus had disappeared. They'd been swallowed up by the, the expansion of the Mongol Empire. The Kievan Rus was never seen again. Uh, later political entities emerged among the East Slavic peoples, all of which were Christian, though, because of the cultural and spiritual legacy of the Kievan Rus. Right? And this is why the Kievan Rus is claimed by modern-day Russians, 
modern-day Ukrainians, Belarusians, basically anyone who is sort of an Eastern Slav can claim the, the Kievan Rus as the source of their Christianity, the source of their cultural and spiritual identity. So it's, it's really interesting. We have kind of a source problem and a perspective problem, though, when we're looking at the conversion of the Kievan Rus. From the Byzantine perspective, it's actually really, really interesting. The Byzantines made a rough job of ethnography. Ethnography was really kind of loosey-goosey for the Byzantines. And really, that's because they were Romans, right? Uh, the, the Roman traditions associated with, with ethnography were, were very, very vague. And then the, the people, the tribes, the barbarians who were being described in traditional Roman and Byzantine ethnographies tended to adopt Roman and Byzantine identities for themselves thus further obscuring people's true ethnic origins, if you will. So from the Byzantine perspective, Slavs were Slavs. Uh, and so from the Byzantine perspectives, the Slavs were converted in the 9th century. In fact, if you look at Byzantine sources, there's no real record of the late 10th century baptism of Russia. Sources from the Byzantine Empire, that they didn't see the conversion of St. Vladimir as that significant of an event. Why? Because Photius in 867 had written an encyclical letter in which he mentioned offhand that the Rus are now Orthodox. The Rus are now Christians. Right? Uh, who were the Rus? The Kievan Rus didn't exist in 867. He's just using an ethnographic term. A generic ethnographic term for Eastern Slavs. They're Christian, according to Photius, in 867. Um, Constantine VII Porphyrogenitus, in his great work, De Administrando Imperio, he says the same thing. He says, ah, you know what? He's writing in the 10th century. He says, yeah, the Slavs have been Christian since the 9th century. No big deal. And later Byzantine historians, John Skylitzes, uh, John Zonatos, they say the same type of thing. Basically, the Slavs have been Christian since the time of Photius, uh, and they don't really record the conversion of St. Vladimir as a significant thing. Slavic sources are very, very different. Right? Sources written in the Slavonic language, which were only able to be written because of the gift of that alphabet given to them by St. Cyril and Methodius, those sources tell a very different story. What they tell us is that in the 9th century and well into the 10th century, paganism was firmly entrenched among the Eastern Slavs. Paganism was firmly entrenched in the Rus, in the area around Kiev. Right, now, there, there's all kinds of possible reasons for the discrepancy between the Byzantine and Slavonic outlook on, on things. To keep things simple, I, I think the, the best way of looking at it is that Slavonic sources are just more attentive not only to local politics, they're more attentive to local just differences and to the diversity among local peoples there. Right, Photius may have thought, oh, I sent missionaries up there and so they're Christian. Uh, Photius wasn't in a position to actually record the effect of his missionaries amongst the Slavic peoples. Right? What ends up becoming clear by the 10th century looking at Slavonic sources is that Christianity had reached the Rus, Christianity had reached the Eastern Slavs, but it hadn't really been popular. Right? The, the culture of the Slavs just didn't take well to the idea of chastity, fasting, prayer, all of this stuff. It was kind of like, why do that when you could do this? It just wasn't very popular. Uh, so, so paganism, it's very, very deeply entrenched, right? And to a certain extent, it has to do with the, the culture of a warrior aristocracy, right? In, in which violence and prestige were deeply and intimately connected. And it, it's in this environment that you see the first momentum for uh, a broader conversion to Christianity really begin, all right? And it actually begins with the life of a queen, a queen by the name of Olga, Olga goes down as a saint in Eastern Christian traditions. Olga was uh, initially a pagan, though. She was only baptized towards the end of her life, which is sort of your ultimate escape hatch for being a saint. 
you know, sort of like Constantine, you, just <laughs> you get your baptism at the end and then, and then you're good. Uh, St. Olga had a very, very colorful life. In the mid-10th century, she became, well, actually in the early 10th century, she became a queen regent, and she had a long regency on behalf of her son, um, Sviatoslav the Brave, whilst he was coming of age. Uh, and then it's interesting, I, I read, in preparation for tonight, I, I read a, a translation of the old Slavonic primary chronicle that talks about the life of St. Olga, and it, it's really, really hilarious. You see her portrayed as this, this epic warrior princess, right? She, she's the heroine of a great epic. So what's the story of her life? It's, it's tragedy, but it's not really tragedy, because she's above all of that. So her husband is killed, right? Her husband is killed by this tribe called the Drevlians. And at the time that her husband is killed, her son was only three years old, in no position to assume the reins of government. So St. Olga says, all right, I will rule the Kievan Rus. I will rule the Kievan Rus from Kiev on behalf of my son until he comes of age. And I will preserve this tribal confederation so that I have something to hand to my son when he becomes a man. Right. Immediately, though, after her husband's death at the hands of the Drevlians, Drevlian emissaries arrived. And they said, we have a message for you, O Queen Olga. The message for you is that we killed your husband, and the fact that we killed him indicates that he was a wimp. Uh, <laughs> our prince, though, our prince is stronger, faster, taller, handsomer, and uh, we're here to get you so and bring you back so you can marry him. She looked at them and she, she said, okay, guys, I've got a plan for you. Here's the deal. We're going to have to think this over, uh, but what I want you to do is, because see, they had come by boat up the river, so she says, I, I want you to stay in your boat, and uh, I'll call you. I'll, I'll send messengers to call you, but when the messengers come to get you, just act really arrogant. Tell them that you're not getting out of your boat, and they have to carry your boat. Okay, and, uh, and then Olga went to work. So the next morning, these poor Drevlian emissaries had spent the entire night shivering in the boat. And uh, so they're, they're shivering the boat, and Olga's emissaries come out to the boat, and they say, okay, guys, come on, out of the boat, you've got to go meet the queen. And they said, no, she told us to act Harry. So they're like, all right, we will not leave this boat. You must carry our boat. And uh, they're like, oh, you want us to carry the boat? Yes. You want us to carry the boat? Yes. All right, we'll carry the boat. So they picked up the boat, <laughs> and they carried it to the pit that they had spent the entire night digging. Uh, <laughs> and they threw the boat into the pit <laughs> and covered it over, burying them alive. <laughs> they, yeah, well, they, they didn't mess around. <laughs> like, it's just one, this is why you have to get baptized at the end of your life. St. <laughs> Olga didn't mess around. Uh, so <laughs> she wasn't done yet, though. She wasn't done. She then sent a message. She dispatched a message to the Drevlians uh, telling them that she wouldn't marry their prince unless the prince sent to Kiev the noblest, wisest, and most important men in the Drevlian kingdom. Right. Because unless she were conducted from her realm by these noble men, her own people wouldn't let her go. And so, of course, the Drevlian prince obliged. He sends a contingent of the noblest, the strongest, the most important warriors and statesmen of Drevlia, or whatever you call it. And they, they come to Kiev, these guys, and she says, okay, guys, uh, this is great. You guys have had a long journey. It's cold because it's the land of the Rus, right? And they're like, yeah, it's cold. She goes, how would you like a hot bath, like in a bathhouse? They had bathhouses. This is really cool, actually. Uh, according to legend, St. Andrew the Apostle was the first evangelizer of this region. And according to legend, uh, Andrew the Apostle was amazed by the bathhouses. He thought they were cool. Uh, but anyway, so the, she's like, yeah, there's a bathhouse here. Go on, go in the bathhouse. So the Drevlians say, oh, yeah, we could really use a hot, steamy bath. So they go into the bathhouse. She locks the door and burns it down. <laughs> 
So, so that works. Uh, then she sends a message again to the Drevlian prince saying, you know what, I have your guys here, I have your, your emissaries and, and your wise men and the governors of your kingdom and all your best warriors, and we're all just kind of hanging out here and uh, having a good time. And, but what, what I need you to do is send your army here for a, for a funeral feast. We have to have a funeral feast for my husband because I can't get married again until I mourn my husband with a funeral feast. Right. So the guy's like, all right, fine. He sends 5,000 warriors to the funeral feast. And uh, 5,000 drunken Drevlians were then slaughtered systematically <laughs> after the feast. So things are going pretty well for Oga. At this point, the Drevlians beg for mercy. They beg for mercy. They, they say, okay, all right. We'll give you all the, the wealth of our land. And what, what's the wealth of your land? If you're living in the land of the Rus, it's furs and honey, interestingly enough. So they offer furs and honey, which were like the, the currency. That was like gold there. And uh, so she says, no, I, I don't need those valuable things of furs and honey. All I need is for each household, each Drevlian household, to send me three sparrows and three pigeons. Easy, right? That, that's a lot easier than coming up with furs and honey. So they say, oh, wow, you're, oh, merciful queen, we thank you for your mercy. Each household among the Drevlian center, three sparrows and three pigeons. So that night, she distributes the birds amongst her army, one bird per soldier. And she instructs them to tie a chunk of burning sulfur wrapped in cloth to the foot of each bird and to sneak over to the border of Drevlian territory and release the birds. So, of course, the soldiers did this. Every bird flew home. The sparrows nesting under the eaves, the birds nesting in, in barns and, and hay bales and fields of crops and wherever birds nest. They all flew back there at once. And according to legend, every house burnt down, every barn burnt down, every field burnt, uh, every hay bale burnt. And, uh, and since they all caught on fire at exactly the same time, there was nobody there to put out the fire. <laughs> so, uh, and that is why there is no such country as Drevlia today. Uh, so <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah, you can ask me if this is true during Q&A. <laughs> I can't tell you how much of this is true. <laughs> Um, no, this is all according to... This, this is why you do source criticism as a historian, but anyway. So it, it's sometime towards the expiration of her regency. Some, sometimes, sometime towards the end of the 950s uh, that apparently St. Olga became interested in Christianity and she actually traveled across the Black Sea to Constantinople to the court of Constantine VII Porphyrogenitus. Okay, now it's interesting. There, there are many different versions of her meeting with Constantine VII Porphyrogenitus. But the, the one that is most trustworthy, I think, in the minds of historians, is the one that was given by Constantine VII himself in his work De Ceremonies. Constantine VII Porphyrogenitus was a prolific writer. He wasn't much of a general. He wasn't even much of an active administrator. But, but he was a great writer and a scholar. And he, he's therefore unique, I think, among Byzantine emperors in that respect. But he wrote an account of it in, in De Ceremonies, uh, where he, he talks in, in very detailed terms about this barbarian princess of the north who was very aged, who came and, and was baptized and adopted the name Helena as her baptismal name in honor of the, the Byzantine empress and all of that. <laughs> the version in the Slavonic Chronicle is totally different. <laughs> the version in the Slavonic Chronicle is that, that St. Olga went to Constantinople to be baptized and uh, that Constantine VII had a huge crush on her because Slavs are a lot better looking than Greeks. Okay, so... <laughs> So, <laughs> so according to the Salonic Chronicle, what happens is Constantine VII says, oh, Olga, I love you, be my woman, 
And she says, well, first I have to be baptized because you can't get baptized. You can't get married if you're a pagan, right? You have to be baptized first. And he goes, yeah, 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 we'll do the baptism first, and then we'll get married. And she goes, hey, Constantine, I need a godfather. Will you be my godfather? And he's like, whatever you want, oh, lover, I'll be your godfather. So he serves as her godfather at the baptism, and then he says, all right, time for us to get married. And she goes, no, you can't marry your goddaughter. <laughs> no. <laughs> That, that story is, is rendered unlikely by the, their relative ages at the time and the fact that the Byzantine church did not uh, condone bigamy. Constantine VII already had a wife. Yeah. So, but I think it, it's just a reflection. When you're looking at the Slavonic primary chronicles and, and uh, all the, these various Slavonic chronicle sources, uh, it's not just that they have fanciful material in them. It's that the fanciful material has a certain polemic to it. Right. And, and this is often true. When you read medieval sources, and this is just kind of a general point about source criticism, when you read medieval sources, you, you say to yourself, it, it, were they just stupid back then or something like that? And the answer is, it's obviously no. There, there's a very detailed and specific context for all of this. Right? And, and the purpose of the Slavonic primary chronicle here was to increase Olga's political prestige. Right? A Byzantine emperor himself sought my hand in marriage. And I turned him down. I gave him the rejection hotline. You know, shut him down. And uh, like, uh, what that does, it, it consolidates the hold on power for a female regent in a warrior aristocracy. I mean, think about the position of a female regent in a warrior elite. It, it's never a comfortable one. All right? And stories like this definitely helped. So despite the conversion of Olga, uh, it's interesting, at this point it still wasn't clear whether Latin Christianity or Byzantine Christianity would ultimately be dominant in the Rus. Uh, because in 959, around the same period, Olga sent emissaries to the court of Otto I. And these meetings between Olga's emissaries and Otto I, they're in Regina of Prum, Tietmar of Merseburg, uh, the Annals of Quedlinburg and Hildesheim. They, they recount these emissaries from the Rus uh, who came to Christian Germany seeking information about Christianity and even seeking possibly a bishop. Now, according to some of these sources, according to the, especially the, the Annals of Hildesheim, they tell us that Adalbert of Magdeburg, who had, been, he had become the first bishop of Magdeburg, he was sent actually as the first German, and therefore Latin Rite bishop, to the Rus in the time of Olga. But the big problem was that Olga could not persuade her son, Sviatoslav, to become a Christian. He remained a staunch pagan throughout his life, and once the son comes of age, the aging female regent can't really hold on to power anymore. And so in 963, about five or six years before Olga's death, she had to yield control of the Kievan Rus to her son Sviatoslav. Sviatoslav expelled Adalbert of Magdeburg. He expelled non-native Christians from the lands of the Rus. Uh, and to some extent, here's where you get the, the, the beginnings of almost a ruthless persecution, even of native Christians in the Rus, that would continue into the reign of Vladimir. Right? And it would continue almost up until Vladimir's conversion. So the reign of, of Sviatoslav is an interesting one. I'll spare you the details, because the details of it really have little to do with Christianization. The reign of Sviatoslav is a time when the Christianization of the Rus basically grinds to a halt, and it takes a back seat to conquest. Sviatoslav was a great warrior. He waged war against the Bulgars. Uh, Sviatoslav was sort of an ally of convenience with Byzantine emperors like John Semiskis and Nicephorus II Phokas and Basil II the Bulgar Slayer. Sviatoslav took advantage of Byzantine hostility to the Bulgars to expand the Rus to the south. He expanded uh, the, the domain of the Kievan Rus to include virtually all of the eastern Slavs. He was a very successful conqueror. But, as often happens, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And so in 972, Sviatoslav was ambushed somewhat abruptly 
uh, when he was marching along the side of a waterfall. And he was ambushed by Pechenegs who, who threw him over the waterfall. And then they found his body and cut his head off and they turned his skull into a drinking bowl, which is kind of standard practice for I got you. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you have a row of those things, you can invite your friends over and it's whatever. So that's the end of Sviatoslav in 972. And it touches off a period of civil war. Right? There were three sons, ultimately three sons of Sviatoslav, who fight in the civil war. And the guy who wins the civil war was his illegitimate son his bastard son, Vladimir. Right? And the fact that Vladimir was an illegitimate son was crucial. <laughs> it was actually crucial in terms of helping him win the war. So who is Vladimir? Vladimir was Sviatoslav's son by means of Sviatoslav's Norwegian housekeeper slash mistress. So it was very, very, very helpful to Vladimir that he was half Viking. Why? Because every time he got in trouble in the Rus, he went back to Norway. Right, or to Sweden, and he had friends there, and he had relatives there. He had people there who were connected with his mother's family. Uh, his mother had apparently been some kind of a diplomatic hostage who was turned into a servant, who was turned into a mistress. And so Vladimir had connections outside the lands of the Slavs. He had connections in Scandinavia, and he used those connections to his utmost uh, advantage, ultimately winning the civil war against his brothers in 980. Right. So as of 980, Vladimir, with Scandinavian help, has consolidated his control over the, the Kievan Rus. But we have to remember, right, the Kievan Rus, even late into the 10th century, it's not a state in the modern sense. It's not a well-organized state. You, you don't have a stable system of administration and taxation. What you have ultimately is a tribal confederation ruled by a warrior elite. And the tribal confederation is loosely organized, and it's organized in terms of loyalty between man and man. Right, so you have the, the East Slavic warrior tribes led by various chiefs who owe allegiance ultimately to a king. But we're not talking about a modern empire or a modern government. Uh, Vladimir, though, uh, he was a thoroughgoing pagan in every way at the beginning of his reign. He was building uh, many different shrines to various pagan gods. He ultimately, he seems to have undertaken a religious reform of East Slavic paganism in this period. He, he tried to make it more monotheistic. He says, ah, you know, one of the strengths of Christianity is that there's one God who's kind of in charge, so we'll just take this guy and make him in charge. You know, he, he kind of rearranged the pantheon so that the God of Thunder was the, the, the most important God in the, the Slavic pantheon. He set up not only shrines, but um, monumental statues of various Slavic pagan gods everywhere. Uh, and it was in this period of kind of revised and, and revitalized paganism that you start getting serious mob violence against Christians in the land of the Rus. It was actually under the rule of St. Vladimir. St. Vladimir, who's considered equal to the apostles. St. Vladimir, the, the, the apostle and converter of the Rus. It was under his rule that you had the first Christian martyrs in the Rus. Uh, Fyodor and Johan, father and son, they're in Slavic tradition, the first martyrs. They were basically killed by a mob after refusing to, to worship some of these, these newly constituted pagan statues here. Uh, so it's, it's in this period, right? it's, it's in this period of Vladimir's paganism in the first eight years of his reign that he builds for himself an epic reputation as a fornicator maximus. Right? This is the period where he, he builds up his harem to rival the harem of King Solomon. Um, he had a whole variety of official pagan wives. And the, the main difference between uh, concubines and official wives is that official wives are for diplomatic purposes. All right, so he exchanged wives in various ways for diplomatic purposes. And it's interesting. It's ultimately the exchange of, of wife for diplomatic purpose that seems to have played a crucial role in Vladimir's conversion. 
Amidst uh, all of his struggles to maintain the expanded kingdom of his father, Sviatoslav, Vladimir opened up diplomatic negotiations with the Byzantine Empire. And uh, he demanded from the Emperor Basil II to be married to Basil II's sister, Anna Porfirogenita. Now, this would have been utterly unprecedented in Byzantine history. Byzantine princesses did not marry barbarians. Okay. The only types of exceptions that were made is when they would take a second, third, or fourth tier Byzantine princess to marry a Holy Roman Emperor. Even first tier Byzantine princesses, like the immediate family of the Emperor, even they didn't marry the Holy Roman Emperor. Even they didn't marry uh, kings of France or people like that. When, when Western, that is to say, barbarian kings sent emissaries asking for a marriage alliance with Byzantium, if they asked too high, they were rebuffed in a peremptory way. Right? And, of course, that's exactly what Vladimir does. He says, I want the princess who was born in the purple. I want the princess who is, who is a direct sister of the reigning emperor. And people are saying, this is crazy. This, this isn't really going to work. Uh, and it certainly isn't going to work if he doesn't convert. And so here's where we, also, we get a, an interesting source problem here about Vladimir's conversion. Is which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does Vladimir become interested in Christianity because of his initially unsuccessful attempts to marry Anna Porfirogenita? Or does his interest in Christianity come first and lead to an interest in a deeper alliance with Byzantium? Right? It, it's an interesting question. You can't necessarily settle it very easily looking at the sources. But the Slavonic chronicles, including the, the Chronicle of Nestor, they tell us very, very interesting stories about this. Uh, the Chronicle of Nestor tells us that Vladimir decided to become interested in monotheistic religions around this time. He's unsuccessfully soliciting the hand of a Byzantine princess. He, maybe he's getting sick of his 800 concubines, or he can't find one that he likes in there. Anyway, he, he's therefore sent emissaries out to inquire about religions, big monotheistic religions, all right, religions with capital R's in front of them. Okay. And it gets interesting here, because the first group that reported back was the emissaries that had gone to inquire about Islam. Uh, now, they didn't really go to the Middle East, because there were, there were Muslims closer to home. There were some Muslims among the Bulgars, okay, oddly enough. So uh, among the, the, the one particular Muslim community among the Bulgars, the emissaries from the Kievan Rus went, and they found, eh, you know, th these people don't seem too happy. And they went back to Vladimir, and they said, yeah, we looked into Islam, and it seems like Islam doesn't make people happy. And Vladimir said, why? And he says, well, first of all, if you become a Muslim, they're going to circumcise you. And he goes, well, that's a non-starter. Uh, <laughs> what else? <laughs> what else? And they said, well, the, there's this other thing, uh, and that is no drinking. Uh, <laughs> Vladimir said, I don't think so. <laughs> in fact, there's actually a quote in the Chronicle of Nestor where St. Vladimir said, drinking is the joy of the Rus, and we could not possibly live without it. So <laughs> the, the emissaries then inquired further among the Khazars. Now, the Khazars, uh, many of them had embraced Judaism in the Middle Ages. So the emissaries from among the Khazars came back, and, and uh, they said, yeah, we, we found out a lot about Judaism, but we don't think that Judaism is for you. And uh, Vladimir said, why? Why not Judaism? And he said, well, there's a thing about the Jews, which is that they got conquered and they lost their you know, city thing? What's it called? Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, like, that was their city, and they lost it. So uh, God obviously hates them. 
Uh, <laughs> Vladimir says, ah, good point, good point. Uh, <laughs> but then what about Christianity? What about the fact that there's two different kinds of Christianity that he was familiar with? He was familiar with German, that is to say East Frankish Latin Christianity, and he was familiar with the Byzantine Christianity of his grandmother, and so he looked into both. And here's where Vladimir was just ultimately comparing apples and oranges. So he sends his emissaries to like, find how do the Latin Christians worship? And they go and they find this, this log cabin structure that was like falling over in the woods somewhere, like where, where the East Frankish missionaries had built a Latin church. And he goes, let's check out their mass. Eh, it's kind of boring. And the, the church is kind of falling apart. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. Let's send emissaries to Hagia Sophia in Constantinople and see, <laughs> see what that looks like. No, uh, no it, it, is, it is amazing. The, the emissaries came back to Vladimir and they said, and, and they're referring not only to, of course, the, the monumental architectural achievement of Hagia Sophia, but that they're referring to the beauty of the Byzantine liturgy at its maximal glory. Right? You're, you're talking about a, a glorious, full-fledged, patriarchal liturgy in the greatest church of the Christian world, celebrated by the chief patriarch of, of Byzantine Christianity, the patriarch of Constantinople. And they said it was so amazing. We didn't know whether we were on heaven or on earth. And there's no words that we could possibly use to describe what this experience was like. And Vladimir was so impressed with this that he decided to convert specifically to Byzantine Christianity. Uh, now, here's where we have some other kind of confusing features associated with Vladimir's baptism. There are differing legends about this. Did Vladimir go to Constantinople to be baptized, for example, or did he not? Sources don't agree about this. Uh, around, it's around this time when he's considering embracing Byzantine Christianity that St. Vladimir was also simultaneously waging war against the Byzantine Empire. Because in 988, he conquered the Byzantine city of Cherson, which was in the Crimea on the Black Sea, and it had been a Byzantine city. It had kind of been recovered by the Byzantines in the 10th century during the time of, uh, of Nicephorus II Phocas. And uh, so he, he conquers the city, seizes it from the Byzantines, and uh, according to one of the legends, it was in that city, in a baptistry of a Byzantine church, that Vladimir was baptized. According to other legends, he actually traveled to Constantinople. So whether his diplomatic relations with the Byzantines were sort of driving things, or whether his conversion to Christianity was actually what initiated his diplomatic relations with the Byzantines. It's something that's kind of hard to disentangle from the sources, but the result of his conversion was sort of instantaneous. He was granted, in an unprecedented gesture, he was granted the hand in marriage of Anna, the sister of, of Basil II, the Bulgar slayer. He then sent 6,000 troops from the Kievan Rus to the Byzantine Empire to assist Basil II in putting down a rebellion led by two great generals, Bardas Sclerus and Bardas Phokas, who were from two of the great military families of the Byzantine Empire, both of whom had connections to the imperial family. It was a formidable rebellion, and it was only with the help of the Kievan Rus that Basil II was able to, to crush these guys. Okay, so to a certain extent, Basil II is willing to play ball on marriage negotiations because he's desperately in need of help. Right? But the, the net result is something that there, there's absolutely no doubt about. The Kievan Rus was incorporated into a broad-based cultural commonwealth with Constantinople at its center. The Christian baptism of St. Vladimir, the Christian marriage of St. Vladimir to a Byzantine princess, it led the Kievan Rus for the rest of its history to have deep and intimate connections with the Byzantine Empire. Right. And one might add, finally you have deeper penetration of Christianity amongst the people. Uh, the, the aftermath of St. Vladimir's baptism was basically a, a mass baptism 
of all the citizens of Kiev and all the other great cities of the Kievan Rus. Uh, citizens were told that they would be enemies of the prince if they didn't come down to the river to receive a mass baptism. If you've ever seen No Brother or Art Thou, you know what that looks like. Uh, but anyway, they're all coming down to the river. Nobody wants to be an enemy of the prince, right? So you have a mass baptism of East Slavic peoples in this period. You have pagan chronicles that make resentful reference to this, saying that St. Vladimir spread Christianity by fire and the sword and things like that. But at the end of the day, he spread it, and the Eastern Slavs became Christians. Right? Now, the, the importance of the conversion of the Eastern Slavs to Christianity, it, it's obviously manifold. It led to an expansion of Christianity across a continent. Right? It also leads, I think most importantly, to the uh, bequeathing of a distinct cultural and religious heritage into the hands of the Slavs. So that when the Byzantine Empire enters its political and economic death spiral in the 14th century. There were people who could still hold up the banner for Byzantine Christianity. And when the Byzantine Empire is finally crushed by the Turks and Constantinople itself is turned into the capital of the Turkish Empire, Byzantine Christianity had a protector in the person of the rulers of the Eastern Slavs. Now that's a two-edged sword. We have to understand that 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 is a two-edged sword. That intimate connection between church and state is part of the, the legacy down into the 20th and 21st centuries uh, of the, just the, the way in which these conversions happened, and even to, to a great extent, the way in which the Byzantines themselves viewed the role of the emperor. Right? And so it, it does, to a certain extent, lead to problems. When the Tsar goes away and you have Lenin, the church hierarchy in Russia collaborates with Lenin. And so the, the, there's a two-edged sword there that we have, to, we have to give full credit to kind of the dark side of that. But the bright side of that is that Byzantine Christianity had a powerful political and military protector in the person of the Russian czars for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And when the Ottoman Empire becomes the sick man of Europe in the modern period, Byzantine Christians in the Ottoman Empire had an even more powerful protector to guide them and, and to defend their faith against Islamic persecution. So that's all. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire, for a wonderful presentation again. And uh, Mr. Kester says he learned one thing tonight, and that is he's got to start praying to St. Olga because she knows how to get things done. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Thanks. Uh, Dr. McGuire, after uh, Vladimir converted and all of his people converted, where did they find the priests to serve all those new converts? Good question. Uh, no, that, that is a very, very serious question. Where do the priests come from? Um, because ultimately, uh, in this period, you had different groups who were competing to send priests among the Slavs. It, it was a situation where, there, I mean, oftentimes in the Middle Ages, you had sort of local and temporary priest shortages. But among the Slavs, you had different competing entities who, who wanted to send priests. So the, it, it, what seems to have been the case, although this isn't well documented, but what seems to have been the case is that the priests came from among the Western Slavs initially uh, and trained the Eastern Slavs in the Glagolitic and Cyrillic alphabets as the alphabet evolved, uh, trained them in the Slavonic version of the Byzantine liturgy. Uh, so the, although Christianity in some sense comes to the Kievan Rus from the Byzantine Empire, in another sense it comes indirectly 
insofar as it's actually the Slavic Christianity that had been bequeathed to, to Western Slavs in the 9th century uh, that kind of defines many of the characteristics of, of East Slavic Christianity and that they, they adopt the same Slavonic language uh, as a liturgical language. And so the initial missionary priests there would have been Slavic priests from among Western Slavs. Father. What is your take on, I, I've heard this theory that the ruling elite of Kievan Rus were not Slavs but were Scandinavian Varangians. Is there any uh, merit to that theory? Uh, there is merit to the theory. So everybody heard what Father said. There's a theory that the, the ruling elite, the warrior aristocracy of the Kievan Rus, were not actually Slavs, that they were Scandinavians. Uh, in fact, that there was a Scandinavian ruling elite and a Slavic populace of sorts. And the answer is that ultimately people just didn't keep track of ethnic identity back then the way that they do today. Uh, I think ethnic identity in medieval times, it didn't mean what it means today. We're dealing with an age long before nationalism or anything like that. And uh, the ultimate answer is, I, I think that the ultimate correct resolution of, of the puzzle is to say that there were many people of Scandinavian descent among the ruling elite of the Kievan Rus. And that you have a guy in, in St. Vladimir who's actually recruiting Scandinavians to come and, and be part. He had his own Varangian guard and all of that, and that was how he won the Civil War. Uh, and so you, you definitely have a, a kind of a, um, a permeable identity boundary there between Slavs and, and Scandinavians. To some extent, identity was more political and, and linguistic than it was in, in the, the modern sense of biological, uh, I guess, biological ethnic identity. And ultimately, I think it's, it's interesting, Father, how we, we find out more and more that the idea of a biological ethnic identity is seeming more and more and more fake as, as we learn more about genetics. Nations and ethnicities are a highly artificial way to, to categorize people, and I think the medievals would have, would have seen it that way. But ultimately, uh, uh, Father's... Sorry. Uh, he's... <laughs> He's absolutely right. Uh, he's absolutely right. You, 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 you do have a, a heavy Scandinavian influence uh, on the culture of the warrior class there. You, you have a, a heavy Viking-type element there. Uh, St. Olga is called St. Helga by the Scandinavians. After Russia was converted to Christianity, how long did it take until there was the, the cultural conversion, I guess you could say, that they really adopted the intellectual tradition and everything of Byzantium? That's a good question. It, it's always gradual. And I, I think what you, what you have is a process over the course of, well, you know, between the conversion of St. Vladimir and the Mongol conquest of that area, you have enough time for Christianity to penetrate the culture, right? And, uh, it, it, you know, if the Mongol conquest had happened sooner, Russia might be a Muslim country today, and the Ukraine and all those places might be, might be Muslim countries today. But, uh, but what you have is you have a period of 250 years, ultimately, where, where Christianity has time to penetrate the culture. But it is, it's always a, a gradual thing. You know, students are always surprised, even as far as Western history goes, students are surprised to, to look at something like the Gregorian Reform and see what the priorities of the Gregorian Reform actually were, like no slaughtering people, no burning monasteries, priests can't have five concubines, you know, like the, those sorts of things. And it, it, it's, you're talking about very, very modest objectives because it, it takes a while for Christianity to turn a barbarian into a civilized man. <laughs> so I, I think it, you know, th that process would have been a gradual one, but it wouldn't be a well-documented one, ultimately. You obviously have like the conversion of the people like the Poles in 966 and eventually this, these sorts of baptisms of cultures took place before the separation of the Orthodox and Latin Rite Church. What exactly led uh, the Kievan Rus to stay with the Orthodox side of things or siding with Constantinople rather than the Vatican? Well, that's a very good question. I think ultimately the, 
the schism between East and West is not an event. Uh, it's a process, right? And it's, it's a process that's very gradual, and it has as much to do with uh, bless you. It has, it has as much to do with cultural estrangement and, and just linguistic and cultural barriers and distance and things like that as it does with anything else. And uh, I think if, if you look at the, the Christianity of the Kievan Rus, they look to Constantinople as sort of the, the, their guiding light, if you will. Uh, Obolensky's concept of the Byzantine Commonwealth, I think, is, is a useful one here to know that Slavic Christians who adopted the Byzantine liturgy, Slavic Christians who accepted missionaries from amongst uh, either the Byzantine Empire or its allies, they tended to envision themselves as being part of a unified thing in the same way. Now, Obolensky, of course, is writing in the 60s, and in the 60s, the notion of the British Commonwealth meant a lot more than it does today. And that's what he was making reference to uh, when Oblonsky makes reference to, to the idea of a Byzantine commonwealth in medieval times. So for the Kievan Rus, although I think it's, it's more precise to say that the, the Kievan Rus specifically, to my knowledge, doesn't ever have a real split with the papacy. Uh, it's simply the, the Christians of the Kievan Rus were in communion with Constantinople. Uh, it's not even clear to me how aware they were of events, say, in the 11th century. Uh, the, the events of the 11th century that people focus on related to the, the schism between East and West, uh, I think, uh, m- I mean, my personal belief is that those events are much less significant than people think they are. And, uh, you know, by, by 1250, or by the time the Council of Lyon, let's say, Council of Lyon is 1274, all right, and it's only really after the Council of Lyon that you can start noting a, a, a sort of a real split where the Orthodox are over here and the Catholics are over here. By that point, there was no Kievan Rus anymore. By that point, the um, Slavic, East Slavic Christians lived under Mongol rule, most of them. Uh, and then the, the Grand Duchy of Muscovy is later in the 13th century. So but, you know, by that point, you have more of a clear split. And, and when the chips were down, the Grand Duchy of Muscovy ends up on the Eastern Orthodox side. So. A message coming online from Ginger in Springfield. We know Ginger, and Ginger, you should be here this evening. <laughs> <laughs> it's only about an hour drive or so. Uh, how did Vladimir become a saint? Well, was saints Olga and Vladimir. What was the process of their canonization in, in comparison mm-hmm. to what we know in the West today as uh, canonization? That's a good question. The overwhelming majority of saints in, from the pre-modern age were not really canonized by any sort of process that would be familiar to us. You know, the, the overwhelming number, the overwhelming majority of saints from pre-modernity were canonized by the consensus of the Church. It's safe to say. And I think with, with saints like Constantine or in the West Charlemagne or Olga and Vladimir and, and people like that, it's, it, it's simply the, the consensus of Christian opinion where the, their names are commemorated in liturgies, their names are, are put into the divine liturgy, and, and they become canonized. Now, it's interesting that the Eastern Orthodox in more recent times have created a formal process of canonization. And so the, the last czar and his family have all been, been canonized with the title of Passion Bearer, which is equivalent to a confessor in the Latin tradition. And, um, you know, so it's interesting. There, there can be a sort of a formal canonization in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, but it, it's even less common there than it is in the West. Uh, and in the West, it, it's interesting. F- figures like Charlemagne, uh, they were never really commemorated more than locally, and it surprises people to know that they still are. Charlemagne, for all his faults, there's a liturgy for St. Charlemagne, and if you go to Aachen, you know, you can attend it. And, and it's, it's, it would be a similar thing for Olga and Vladimir, you, except obviously much more widely acclaimed as saints by, by the totality of, of Eastern and Western Christianity. Uh, but the liturgical commemoration of Olga and Vladimir is something that I'm not aware that they were ever added to the Latin calendar, uh, to my knowledge. But Thank you for the overview of the old history of Russia, which is totally unknown to us. I think I have known Russia only from the movies, 
watching the royal family was assassinated by the influence of Rasputin, which apparently was a Satanist, was he or not? What kind of Catholics were they? And what, when I saw the title of your lecture, mm -hmm. I expected to hear the present conversion of Russia, for which we, they had Catholic churches praying every day in the Rosary. Right. Very, very good question. I'm not going to say anything about Rasputin, because... Um, there's a cartoon about him, and so you can go watch that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. Rasputin, he, he fits into a certain tradition in Slavic Christianity of the traveling hermit, the, the traveling holy man. And, um, you know, whether, whether he was ultimately a very evil man or, or not is, is hard to say. I, I, I personally think that the overall historical importance of Rasputin is easy to exaggerate simply because he captures the imagination. Uh, but uh, as far as the, the conversion of Russia today, there's something very, very important that we have to realize. And that is, we do pray for the conversion of Russia. Right? But according to the papacy, what we are not praying for is for Russia to be converted from Byzantine Christianity to Latin Christianity. That's not what we're praying for. That, that's the, the papacy has never given us even permission to pray for that intention. What we're praying for is for the conversion of Russia from the atheistic attitudes that took root there under communism. Right? And the vast majority of Russians today live atheistic lives. It's what has one of the highest abortion rates uh, in the entire world, etc. We're praying for the conversion of Russia from that atheism back to its Christian roots. Right. And, and so the, the prayers for the conversion of Russia, it, it's a distinct intention. It, it's distinct from praying to heal the schism with the Russian Orthodox Church. The, it, it is not uh, an avowed objective of the papacy to convert Russians to Latin Christianity away from Russian Orthodoxy. It is an objective of the Church uh, to assist in the conversion of, of Russians back to Christianity. And to a certain extent, this does bring us into conflict with the Eastern Orthodox because there are so many historically Latin peoples in Russia today. It's a legacy not only of the Russian Empire in the 19th century, but of course the, the communist depredations of the 20th century, that many Catholic, um, well, Eastern Rite Catholic Ukrainians, Latin Rite Catholic Poles and others were transported to Siberia and, and to these remote locations in, in Eastern Russia. I talked to a, a young lady before the lecture whose daughter is a nun in eastern Russia. And uh, there, so there, there are Catholic efforts uh, with funding from the United States and, and other more affluent parts of the West, I guess, to minister, to bring the sacraments to the descendants of, of Polish and other Latin Christians in Russia and, and bring them back to the practice of their faith. But it's important, I think, to distinguish. It, it's very, very important in the mind of the church that we not be seen as hostile to Russia's Byzantine tradition. Thank you very much, Professor. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.